Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. Welcome to the Grizzly Beat. I'm delighted today to be partnering on this show with Counterpunch Radio. Online at Counterpunch, you will also find my weekly blogs for Grizzly Times. Today's show is particularly special because it focuses on two environmental heroes, Jim and Heidi Barrett, who are modest people who have accomplished great things from the base for years of a tiny cabin at the edge of Yellowstone National Park. In this time of widespread tumult and violence, it is important to remind ourselves that a few dedicated people can achieve great things and indeed help restore sanity in a world that seems at times to have gone mad. Jim and Heidi spend their time at their cabin in Silvergate and in Livingston, Montana. They've spent many, many years around the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, up close and personal with wildlife and wilderness. And they're here today to share some of their experiences with us. Thank you so much, Jim and Heidi, for taking the time. Thanks for having us. So how did each of you come to live in Cook City? And why Cook City? Well, I came to Cook City, I originally came to Cook City in 1972. I had... uh, the year before I got out of the military, I was drafted in the military, I thought, well, I want to see the country. And so I convinced a woman to ride with me around the country, and it turns out that her stepfather had a partnership with a man in Cook City, an old-timer, in you know various little mining claims, you know, small, small-time pick-and-shovel stuff. And so we stayed at his place that first summer, stayed in... Uh, uh, Cook City worked with a, you know, did some little day labor stuff to make gas money to move on down to Colorado and stuff, and then just decided to. Uh, we went back from De- we were from Detroit, went back to Detroit, and then uh, we decided to get married the next spring. And then we thought, let's go to the coolest place we found, which was that area up around Cook City, and so uh, you know, the rest is history, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I started coming out to Cook City in uh, 1983. Uh, I took a little road trip with my brother and sister. My older sister had worked at a cafe in Silvergate, Montana, and thought, oh, my God, you have to see this cute little mountain town up in the middle of the wilderness. And I remember I um, I didn't really want to go because I had a boyfriend back home, and I thought, oh, even for a weekend, I, you know. But as soon as I saw it, I was... I was hooked in 1983. So in 1984, I started working for the people who owned the Log Cabin Cafe who were from Nebraska, which is where I grew up. And I worked there for seven summers in between going to uh, college. I got my art degree and then even between teaching jobs because I had the summers off. So um, in 1990, I was up there and that's when I met Jim, who was up there uh, doing carpentry work, and uh, in 1991 we got married and moved back to Silvergate and took up permanent residence there for a couple years. So both of you have seen uh, so much wildlife. Uh, Cook City is 
uh, on the doorstep of Yellowstone Park and the bear tooths and uh, and grizzly bears and mountain goats and all kinds of stuff. Maybe you could just pick uh, one story that uh, that was particularly touching to you about any kind of experience with wildlife. Well, one that was particularly touching for me, um, it had to be in the either the late 70s or the early early 80s. Um, one evening, it was dark, one evening I heard some commotion. There was some commotion outside, outside of our cabin. And my dog, uh, Spot, uh, he got all excited and he you know, wanted to go outside. And I opened the door and he just took off. And I thought, what's that about? And so I went outside with a flashlight and he was gone. He hightailed it. And I heard this kind of rumbling in the rocks, you know, because we live on a sort of a rock slide. And uh, I'm shining the flashlight, and I and lo and behold, within ten feet of me, there are three grizzly cubs that they're about the size of a like a two-year-old baby. You know, they were just these huh. bears, and I'm thinking, oh, oh, that's not good. And I'm trying to shoo them away, like get shoot, 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 and they just kept. You know, wiggling, you know, they're turning their heads around and curious, kept coming at me. And I thought, whoa. And I, I, I heard that just an imperce- almost imperceptible little kind of a woof from somewhere. So I shined this light around, and the light, it's always almost like looking at a mountain range. This huge sow grizzly, as the flashlight goes over the humps and stuff, and mm-hmm. And she looked, you know, the eyes were caught in the flashlight. And the three little bears, just like uh, all three of them just got in a line and just turned around and started walking toward her. And they walked down, in, all in single file, down to the road, or above the road. And I'm just going nuts because that was how awesome is that, right? And I'm seeing where they are, where they go. And the three little cubs... I had a Volkswagen Beetle, and for some reason, they just thought that was the coolest thing in the world, and they started climbing all over it, and just like it was a, a jungle gym or something, just kind of mauling it, and then all got down off the car and followed their mother out the road. That was an incredible thing. The unfortunate thing is that those three cubs, uh, if, if you, you recall, they tried to... Uh, relocate them, and they had a helicopter, and they a couple of them dropped. Oh and, my God! And they died from you know, what, whatever happened—a malfunction in the basket or whatever that they were using to transport them. Oh. Um, so that was the downside of that. But that was a that was very memorable hmm. to have that close proximity with them without any threats mm-hmm. or any. And she didn't seem to mind. Mm-hmm. She knew that. At least I wasn't between them. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> anyway, so that's that's great. Yeah, this moments, especially when they're peaceful. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, a story of mine. Yeah. Um, gosh, there's a couple. I mean, seeing grizzly bears is always a treat. Um, 
probably a really, really close encounter of wildlife was when we were living up at the cabin, and it was in the wintertime, and I was just going to bound out. We have two separate little cabins at our place, and I was going to bound out and get a cup of coffee. I was working and thought I'll get a cup of coffee, and I flung open the door and came bounding out right into the hind end of a um, bull moose. It must mm-hmm. have been five feet from my face and I kind of gave a little scream and the moose just kept going up the path I mean it wasn't a a, luckily I didn't hit it but it was right there and it was bigger than I was for Mm -hmm. sure Um, but seeing the wildlife up close living up there was really really a treat and and we've seen a lot of different animals um, and we feel very grateful for that too so special place so both of you were leaders in a major campaign to uh, prevent a gold mine from being built on the doorstep of uh, Yellowstone Park and, and the Beartooth Wilderness. And uh, it would have been a terrible disaster environmentally in terms of the rivers and one flowing into the park and wildlife and impacts on, on the community of people who live there and recreate there. How did you become, how did you come to be involved in that battle? And what was it like for you? Well, I got involved um, basically when I first heard about it. Um, uh, it might have been a year before I got involved. A friend of mine and I took a hike, and we went up on top of Henderson Mountain, which is the mountain within which was this ore body. And we went on this hike and went up on top of there, and we just thought, you know, how cool is this? looking at the wilderness, looking down at the Clark's Fork of the Yellowstone River, thinking, how cool is this to be in a place that's so protected and, and this is why you protect wild country. And then, like in a year later, I find out that there's, even though we had seen many small-time mining going on and drilling forever, suddenly now this is a real thing. And... Uh, there's this proposal to do this huge mine. And um, because I was a resident there and I already had an, a passion for the place, uh, I could not be involved in that. So essentially I got started, mm-hmm. as, as you recall yourself, mm-hmm. when we all started getting involved with that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, quite an adventure, that I can say that. Yeah, and I got involved because when I was dating Jim, which was the summer of 1990, um, it was very romantic. He took me to a scoping meeting at the fire hall in Cook City, and I thought, wow, okay, this is interesting. But, it I mean, it truly did pique my interest, and then um, the next year we were already married, and by that time we were we were thick in it with the Beartooth Alliance, and um, so I think just being um, good stewards of our home is really the reason we got involved. I mean, NIMBYs serve a purpose, not in my backyard, is because they can be the watchdogs and the canary in the coal mine to be the first people to kind of say, wow, this could be huge and we should get involved. And um, and I'm really glad we did. I think it was, the, it was a great adventure and it was the right thing to do. Yeah, and it certainly was fabulously successful. I mean, no mine will ever be built. Uh, in that part of the world. It's a great ending that doesn't often happen. So why why do you think it was successful? Why do you think you won? Well, I think uh, Yellowstone National Park has a lot to do with that. Uh, initially, we when we got involved, we, got, we were part of an organization that um, 
you know, try to protect communities and protect economies and this sort of thing. And uh, most of them were agricultural communities, even though they were some mining communities. But uh, we were trying to uh, elevate the issue to where we could get the attention um, to get the support to do something about this, to challenge it, to modify it, whatever in the beginning. We didn't know what ultimately was going to happen. Um, but it turned out that not everybody knows where Cook City is. And so we decided that, you know what, we should be, you know, we are part of the, the, the Yellowstone ecosystem. And Yellowstone is the heart of that ecosystem. So the campaign should be about protecting Yellowstone. Um, and once we did that, it just launched into an international uh, discussion that ultimately uh, allowed Al Gore to swoop in and save the day and get this, uh, organize a buyout of this thing and shut it down and, like you said, um, remove that place from mineral entry, hopefully forever. Um, and so I think the, the success of it was, it was uh, Yellowstone is an icon is an international icon that, you know, people, we learned during that whole thing that there are people that you would never expect to know what Yellowstone is, but they do. In far-flung parts of the world, people know what Yellowstone is. And Yeah, and an interesting perspective from my point of view, too, was I was doing a lot of the... Um, public outreach and getting the mail for the Beartooth Alliance and reading the letters of, you know, that people would write and send us copies of. And we seriously had um, people from seven different countries wrote and took the time to let the Beartooth Alliance know that they were in support of stopping this gold mine. And we heard from just the greatest uh, people in the country who, even though they said they didn't think they would ever even come to Yellowstone at any point in their life, that it was important enough to them to just know it existed in the they wanted it to exist for other people. And so I thought it was pretty moving, too, because I think it really did tug at people's heartstrings, and it was a real thing that Americans and people around the world feel that it really is their first. It's the first national park in the world, and it's really their park. And so, yeah, it was really cool. Well, I can say this, having watched both of you, that um, this fight never would have been successful if it weren't for your leadership and the grassroots support. I mean, it really came down to whether people in the community are going to stand up and, and fight this. Not only that there was international interest, but uh, so thank you for, for the, all of that hard work, years of work uh, that it was. Yeah. So since you're in the middle of grizzly bear habitat, um, and both of you have been advocates for grizzly bears uh, for years, maybe you can share uh, what you think some of the major challenges for recovery are. Well, obviously, for me, um, you, know, I've, you know, there's their habitat is being fragmented. The the food they depend on is threatened. Um, those are those are things that, from my perspective, are going to be really difficult to overcome in the short term, um, especially with climate change affecting, you know, uh, vegetation and so on. Um, but I, I believe that the still, and this, this to me is all wildlife face. This is just habitat loss. 
uh, degrading of wild of habitat. Um, so, you know, the the we hear arguments about let's get the public lands back to the states and that sort of thing, which to me, uh, regardless of what you know, failings or whatever may be occurring in federal management of lands, uh, having them in federal hands is much better than giving them to the states and to ultimately privatizing them, because that would just be the death knell for all kinds of stuff. So I guess for me, ultimately, it's it's just about habitat and, you know, the population that uh, it keeps in, the human population encroaching on that habitat. Yeah, so Heidi, um, you were deeply, you both were, but you were deeply involved in an initiative in the early 2000s to improve how Cook City was handling its garbage and what was happening to garbage, which had been a big problem uh, where bears were getting habituated in, in food right in town, uh, where the dumps, where the dump was. Um, maybe you can share a bit about the story of what you did and uh, what happened. Yeah, so Cook City um, had green box sites, which for people who aren't familiar with that, it's a big area where you have the green open kind of dumpsters and then it had a wire fence around it and had a gate that usually was supposed to be closed when the dump wasn't open. Um, and we received notification from Park County. They send out the, the green box hours and you get a little permit that if you're in the county, you can hang that on your car and use the county dump sites. Well, in that letter that we got, it must have been about February or March that year, they had all the green box sites listed in Park County except for Cook City. So it had all the hours of operation, when the gates were going to be open, when the gates were going to be closed, but nothing for Cook City. So I just thought, well, that's weird. What, what are they doing with Cook City? So I called, and they said, well, we haven't been able to find anybody to really take care of opening and closing the gates. So right now it's just open, and they didn't have set hours because nobody was working up there. And I just thought, wow, you know, that... That is so sad because we already knew in the past that when bears got into the dump right after they got out of hibernation, that they were usually a dead bear. I mean, that's what Cook City was known for. They were kind of the sinkhole, the black hole for bears in the ecosystem. Um, so I was upset by that because I just thought, wow, how irresponsible. I mean, to not have a place where we know grizzly bears frequent, not have it manned and closed. So I contacted the county commissioners and I complained and I talked to everyone I could talk to and they weren't sure what to tell me other than that they didn't have the money and it was just hard to keep the gate closed up there. So I called a meeting with the county commissioners and some folks from the Forest Service, some community members, and we ended up having kind of a big public meeting with the county commissioners you know, just saying, we need to solve this. We need to either find somebody to work there. We need to close the gate. And kind of right at the same time that was happening, um, Dan Tires, who worked for the Gallatin National Forest um, and was real involved in uh, some of the mitigation that was going on because of the Beartooth Highway getting built through there, he was pretty sure that he could come up with um, some land and some money because of that mitigation project to use to build a, you know, we could do an enclosed... Uh, compactor site where actually it wouldn't be open to the air at all. It wouldn't be open to bears. It would be closed. It could be manned. Um, and Jim certainly pop pipe in with more details on that. But um, it kind of all just fit together. And so we had a big public meeting that next summer. And we had um, Carrie Gunther, who I think is with the Park Service. And we had Dan Tires, who was the interagency grizzly bear team person. And then who's the other person we had? 
Carrie Gunther Dan Tires. Oh, uh, Kevin Fry. Thank you. Uh, they all came up to Cook City, and we had a huge public meeting, and tons of people turned out. It was one of our better attended meetings in Cook City, and we found out that people had two really strong opinions. They cared about grizzly bears, and they also had kind of a strong opinion about what happened to their dump and if taxpayer money was going to be used. So it was a great opportunity to tell them that really they didn't even have to put money into it. We could get this to happen without individuals having to cough up more money. So it was kind of a win-win situation to get that compactor put in um, up in Cook City, and I believe it was done that next November already. We had the opening and... Uh, we had a little opening down at the dump, which was really fun. And Louisa, I think you were there, and we had coffee and donuts and got to throw some uh, uh, materials into the compactor and see it work. But that's that's kind of how that all came about. And, um, uh, yeah, now it's the dump site is like a kind of a tourist attraction up there. It's where Cook City has its art gallery because any art that is found, it's now up on the walls. And they also have the Cook City Silvergate Library is there. There's a big section of books that you can come and get. And then kind of like a Goodwill store, anything that's decent, people can save. And there's two dumpsters and you can rummage through and get some great hand-me-downs. And so it's kind of become a... Um, a uh, um, source of pride for the community. I think they're really proud of it. And a lot of times you take people, you know, like when my mother was visiting, I had to take her to the compactor building so we could see the art show and, you know, the cool indoor <laughs> building. So it's been it's been a really, really great thing. Um, and it just took the community a little time to get used to it. So, And it was an amazing... Uh, the results were instantaneous, yeah. and they were a, an amazing shift. When I first came to Cook City back in the early 70s, it was shortly after the Park Service had decided that no more open dumps, but the communities around the park still had them, like Cook City had our giant hole in the ground where it was just a big smorgasbord, and Bears would immediately, upon coming out of hibernation, head to the Cook City, you know, dump, which then, of course, they would be around getting in other kinds of, you know, mischief, if you will. Um, and once, and the, 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 the green box site, once that, that one was supposed to be closed, because then they were closing these open pits. Then it moved into town, and it was like Heidi said, just green boxes, like the county has everywhere. But in those days, they, they didn't fence them in. They didn't. It, there was no thought about that. And so initially, with okay, well, I mean, we didn't. But the people who were dealing with it, we had to fence this in because these bears are getting in there, and dogs are getting in. Everybody's getting in there. So the fence, it didn't work because the bear would just climb over the fence. And then they would use tried putting uh, electric wire around the top, and the bears seemed to like getting off on a little bit of a shock, so that didn't stop them. Tried putting metal, uh, you know, like metal roofing vertically so they couldn't get a grip on the fence. Uh, that seemed to work, but then in the winter, when the snow, we get a lot of snow up in Cook City, the people who were, in, were getting paid their little stipend to man that gate, it just got to be frozen open. And so then all winter, it's open, and up in Silvergate, Cook City, the snow doesn't leave sometimes till early July. 
So that thing stayed open well after the bears had come out of hibernation, and they're just waltzing in and out of there, uh, creating, again, opportunities for them to get in trouble with somebody else, somebody wants to shoot them because they're after their dog or whatever. Um, and so the, the idea of the, compost, the compactor inside of a building, it was just uh, incredibly, it just literally shut the door on any kind of attractants. Mm -hmm. And then all, all that was left or still is left is uh, you know, people that have bird feeders mm -hmm. or they sometimes put dog food out to leave it out for their dog or um, in some nefarious instances they would, to help give the tourists a little thrill, they would leave garbage out mm -hmm. to attract bears. Um, but for the most part, even though bears still wander through on their mm -hmm. treks for wherever they're coming from or wherever they're going, mm -hmm. there is not the confrontation uh, and, and, and the mortality that was occurring before that happened. So that, mm -hmm. so. Yeah. The data is pretty stunning. Um, a sort of before and after picture of, of conflicts and mortalities in Cook City. It was like you did shut the shut the door on yeah, those bears, and, and uh, that must be a really happy feeling to, you know. It I, is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's really really gratifying. So both of you have also been involved in some issues that may have been a little more difficult um, around grizzly bear conservation, especially around the issue of roads management. Um, and as we know, the science shows that bears kill, uh, roads kill bears in a variety of different ways, but particularly by habituating bears to the presence of people. And so road management has to sort of minimize or at least control the number of roads in landscapes. And efforts on the Forest Service's part up in Cook City area were not particularly well received or were difficult. Um, maybe you can share a little bit about that chapter and what that was like for you. And, the Forest Service tried to come to grips with road densities in Cook City? Um, well, I got involved when I won 4th of July. As I mentioned earlier, there's snow, especially in the high country, well into the summer. Uh, I was riding my mountain bike up to basically where the mine proposal was going to take place. And I was on a gravel road driving up riding my bike, huffing and puffing, and down the gravel road coming at me was a snowmobile with, you know, sparks flying off its thing. And I'm like, what What the heck is this about? And then I saw, I kept riding, and I saw some people out there in some of the meadows and the fens riding through these fens to get from one snow patch to another. So essentially tearing up some of this fragile... Um, fragile vegetation. And I thought, you know what? The bears, they, they, whether they are actually hibernating in that area or whether they're hibernating somewhere farther out, they come through that area to head, it, head into the park. And, and so the vehicles are essentially year-round. There are vehicles, snowmobiles, ATVs, you know, constantly a constant presence and so that the my, and my feeling was is that the bears have, they don't get a break so either they're going to try to run the gauntlet through that and 
possibly have a confrontation, or they're going to try to go around it and do, you know, whether that harms their their ecology or not, I don't know, but it sort of seemed like it to me. So I, uh, I made myself, my anger known to friends that I, I, I uh, became acquainted with during the mine fight, which, you know, Doug Honnold, uh, Earth Justice, uh, Louisa Wilcox, <laughs> and uh, we set about to put a put a little bit of a fire behind the uh, the agencies to do something about that to either um, limit that time when vehicles could be up there, limit the number of roads that vehicles could travel on, and. Uh, you know, it wasn't, we weren't very popular in town because of that, uh, because much of, the, much of their economy, if you will, uh, when you're not just a re uh, summer resident, people that actually have a little business up there depend on snowmobiles and ATVs. And so it was perceived as though we were going to be shutting them down, which, of course, we didn't, and there was never any intention to do that. But uh, we... We made it through. We got the the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service to do the their biological opinion and stuff they were supposed to do a long time ago. Um, and ultimately, uh, we we survived, and people treat us, you know, just like regular residents. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. it was not an easy thing to do. Right, and I will say that it was interesting because the <clears throat> that little stint where we were challenging the agencies to be more forceful with enforcing motorized use and all of that was more contentious than the mind battle in my eyes, but it may have been because we felt kind of like we were alone in that rather than having, you know, a big group of conservationists with us up there. Um, but it was a weird time because people were really upset about that, and I was surprised by that, that the, the, the use of motorized vehicles and where they're, they want to be able to travel on public lands or not um, was a big issue right then, which I guess now would be already 15 years ago or so. But it was interesting to me as a person, and it was a time when um, kind of threats against us were more so than when we were fighting a, mm -hmm. a mine. So it was not a great time for me as a m mother because it was disconcerting that people had such anger against us, I guess. So I would just throw that out that it was an interesting time. But we did make it through, and I think we did the right thing. Mm -hmm. I believe that. And overall, on the Gallatin Forest, road densities are much better. But it took 15, 20 years to right. kind of get there. Yeah. So sometimes these things are slow, yeah. and, um, unfortunately. So you've been up in Cook City so long. Undoubtedly, you've seen changes in people's attitudes and about wildlife or wilderness or the park or grizzly bears. Um, maybe you could share a little bit about what changes you've seen? Yeah, what I've noticed is that um, in the last 20 years, I think people are much more, um, they understand the importance of Cook City and Silvergate being a wild place and the fact that it has wildlife and really great fishing streams and recreational opportunities. I think now there's not 
that thought that extractive industries are how Cook City and Silvergate need to make their living, it, it almost seems overall that people get it that we're next to Yellowstone National Park, that we live in this fantastic um, wilderness area. Like Jim likes to say sometimes, if you just take Google Maps and put in Silvergate and Cook City and then back away, we're in the middle of like this huge wildland area. Mm-hmm. And I think people that are there now really see that as an asset and it seems like people kind of have been embracing it a lot more than maybe they did um, 20 or even when Jim first showed up 45 years ago. It's a little bit different attitude. Mm -hmm. Um, And I find it really refreshing because people seem pretty, um, there seems to be a whole kind of community effort and pride in knowing what a special place Cook City and Silvergate is. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the younger people that came out and now have been there for 20 years really take pride in, in that and just like they do in the new dump facility so but certainly yeah I just recall when I first came out there the people there was there was an appreciation because there was Silvergate which was actually designed as a resort town it was not associated with Cook City at all it was actually started as a resort community and then of course Cook City was left over a remnant a relic of mining days and so on and it just seemed that there was an appreciation that people had. Everybody knew all the flowers. They would, you know, have special little gatherings and show slides and this and that. And there was just this appreciation um, uh, for a lot of from from a lot of the the, the summer people, I guess you would call them, that uh, this is a very special place. And this is look at all this cool stuff that we get to see. And then that sort of you know, diminished a little bit. It just, either that or I just wasn't around anymore. But the, when the wolves, when the wolf reintroduction occurred, that was another transformative time for Silvergate and Cook City. Because then it became, uh, that was a launching, uh, that was your, your, what do you call, base camp. Mm-hmm. For going and looking at wolves in the park, mm-hmm. and it became just an incredible, another transformation. The motorized thing continued through all that, but this encroached on that in a big way, and it and it transformed a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the purpose people had for for being around there, mm-hmm. and so uh, obviously, you know, watching wildlife is always a fun thing to do, but then when the the wolves were put on the landscape, back on the landscape, that just opened up a whole whole big thing uh, for bringing not only wolves but bears. Mm-hmm. Uh, people just became more aware when they started scoping for a wolf. They're, look out, there's a bear, a cup. You know, so they, it, it really became an exciting, mm-hmm. and it still is, I think, mm-hmm. to a large degree, it's a, it's a huge uh, awareness that has, uh, you know, uh, come about just because of all that opportunity that people have now. Um, so if you ever had to fight the mine again, you'd probably start off in a stronger place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We wouldn't have to have the long discussion at the fire hall to say, what would be that key thing that would make people think about this gold mine? And somebody said Yellowstone, and we're like, oh, the light went off. Now we know that Yellowstone is the is a key to a lot of stuff, and it's a, we're darn lucky we get to live by it and be part of it. 
Well, both of you raised a son sort of up there on and off, Evan, and he now is off on his own and uh, fledged. Um, hmm. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what that was like to bring up a, a son there and what his experience like how he looks back on. Oh gosh, it was um, it was great. You know, we lived in our little cabin on a road that wasn't maintained, so um, we did a lot of skiing and uh, walking in and out of our place, hauling groceries. Uh, Evan got to be near wildlife up close. I know we have some photos in our album of him as a little baby right next to grizzly bear prints in the snow uh, one morning and and the prints look nearly as big as he was. Uh, I think it was just fantastic. He had adventures like no other kid. I mean, talk about having the wilderness as your backyard. It literally was his backyard. And um, he had all kinds of adventures with um, seeing mountain lions in the woods, um, chasing bears off the porch, uh, <laughs> fishing in the Soda Butte. I remember he was pretty small when he caught his first uh, rainbow trout on a, on his fly line. Uh, so I think that he would feel, and he would say that it was just a fantastic childhood and that he carries the love of the wilderness and the love of nature and actually the love of people. He is a very personable young man um, with him right now in Seattle, uh, but he does have a love for this place, and I know he is, was extremely proud to be part of the New World Mind fight. We always joke that one of Evan's first words was fact sheet because we were always <laughs> taking fact sheets with us everywhere we went, and that was one of his first words. Uh, so he really grew up in a, in the conservation movement, and I, I really think that it's just part of who he is, and we're, we're really proud of that as he goes into his adult life. So, Jim, you spent uh, a variety of different lives. I mean, you've been uh, work, worked in the woods, you've uh, been a professional conservationist, and now you're doing your artwork, um, which is beautiful. What are you uh, gaining, or what kind of perspectives do you have now that you're seeing the world through the eyes of an artist full-time? Well, let's see. Um, my artwork, because, you know, we lived up in the mountains. We traveled through Yellowstone, you know, weekly, if not more so. Um, so our, pretty much everything that we were about was about wildlife. So my artwork um, reflected that. Um, I, I use iconic, you know, bears and stuff uh, as, a, as a vehicle, as a something to create art with. Um, I'm not an illustrator. I just, it's a, it's a, uh, a way to express color and form and that sort of thing. Um, but I think I've always been, uh, you know, I don't know that my perspective has, has changed about wildlife. Um, it's just become more of a, uh, since it's my, my profession now, it's more of a, a visible uh, manifestation of my kind of, my ethic uh, about this place. And so I use that as a, a way to express that in, a, in, a, in my own subtle ways. Um, you know, they're not overtly uh, social commentary or anything, but they, they do express, they do evoke things within people, I think, that, that garners appreciation for wildlife and, mm -hmm. 
you know, how fragile they are on the landscape. So, yeah. Well, both of you have had career changes, and you too, Heidi, from also being a professional environmental advocate to now working with uh, victims of domestic abuse and violence. How how's that experience been, and have you gained some insight from that, or some surprises that? Yeah, you know, I um, I worked at the Greater Yellowstone Coalition for 17 and a half years, and um, I then went to the Senior Center, which was a great experience. I did that for two years, and I think now I'm with Aspen, the Abuse Support and Prevention Education Network. What all those things have in common, um, and that I feel really strongly about, is giving voice to people and or animals who don't have a voice themselves. Um, with seniors, what it was is that there's so many issues with the elderly and they oftentimes feel very marginalized and don't even know where to get the resources to help make their lives better. So I was able to, when I was there, the most important part was realizing that I actually could be that spokesperson to help seniors get what they need to um, live out a, a lovely life late in their life. Um, and with Aspen, it's about giving voice to many times women, women and children who are in a violent um, relationship or have, are living with a violent situation. And we actually are there to help advocate for them and to help give them voice when maybe they can't because they're too afraid or they're feeling threatened or they just don't know what resources are out there to help them. So um, all the work, both the conservation work I've done and then the human services work is really giving voice to the people and to the animals that don't have a voice themselves. So I actually see a lot of parallels in it and I'm enjoying the work very much. I realize that um, helping people is just a really re rewarding way to go through your life. So it's been great. So maybe finally, um, your perspective um, about grizzlies and wildlife in uh, in the Greater Yellowstone, are you hopeful, given what you've seen? You know, I, I am hopeful. I think there are there. You know, just as I've I've watched the, you know, the roller coaster ride that, in my short experience, uh, living in the ecosystem, just watching them, you know, come back from the brink, literally. And then see them have some successes, and there's some setbacks, and this and that. But I just I am hopeful that there, there, there will be continue to be a place for bears. Um, I, I qualify that with obviously there are things that are out of all of our control. Some things are in our control, and the more in we need to continue to pursue uh, solutions to those things that are in our control. Um, but I, uh, you know, obviously in the, this, this new administration, I'm not too, uh, I'm not too uh, confident in them um, being uh, sympathetic to some of these issues. But uh, there are there are enough of us uh, who won't sit by. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess, um, yeah, I guess being. Hopeful is a good way to be. Uh, sometimes I'm more pessimistic than Jim is. Uh, but I do think that if we can concentrate on some of the success stories we've had and also helping 
people learn how to live with grizzly bears, I think that we can make some big strides where the news isn't bad about grizzly bears, it's actually really good. And um, there are less and less confrontations against grizzly, I mean, with grizzly bears and humans. Um, so the more we concentrate on those good stories and get those good, happy stories out there, I think people will find affinity with the grizzly bears. And um, yeah, I'm hopeful that they'll survive into the future. Well, we all are, so thank you very much. Uh, we're with Jim and Heidi Barrett on the Grizzly Bee. Thank you. Thanks for having us.